Reading the word of God this morning from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Good morning. I don't know if you're aware of the plight of Christians, Coptic Christians in Egypt over the last several years. They um, have been attacked by ISIS and, uh, and uh, several other violent extremists. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, several years ago, there are 21 of them who were beheaded on the beach uh, in Libya. And the brothers of one of those who, was, who died said, thank you, ISIS, because you have brought the cause of Christ into the world's um, attention in ways that we never could have. Another article on the Coptic Christians from Christianity Today. It's a really interesting article. I'll just read the one page instead of the whole thing. Twelve seconds of silence is an awkward eternity on television. Amr Adib, perhaps the most prominent talk show host in Egypt, leaned forward as he searched for a response. The cops of Egypt are made of steel, he finally uttered. Moments earlier, Adib was watching a colleague in a simple home in Alexandria speak with the widow of Nassim Fahim, the guard at St. Mark's Cathedral in the seaside Mediterranean city. On Palm Sunday, the guard had redirected a suicide bomber through the perimeter metal detector where the terrorists detonated. Likely the first to die in the blast, Fahim saved the lives of dozens inside the church. I'm not angry at the one who did this, said his wife, children by her side. I'm telling him, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I couldn't have dreamed of. 
Stunned, Adib stammered about cops bearing atrocities over hundreds of years, but couldn't escape the central scandal. How great is this forgiveness you have? His voice cracked. If it were my father, I could never say this, but this is their faith and religious conviction. Bishop Thomas of the Coptic Church said, when people see this attitude from Christians in the church, they ask themselves, what kind of power is this? Forgiveness. Worship, faithfulness to Christ in the middle of violence and persecution, these are the ways of God's people when we face evil and chaos. From the early church until today, the people of God have faced violent persecution. The church was born when our Lord rose from the dead after an unjust trial and a violent death at the hand of the Romans. Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned by community leaders but offered forgiveness to those who murdered him. Eleven of the twelve apostles died violently. The early church experienced such regular persecutions that theologian Tertullian is paraphrased as saying, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And martyrdom continues. Historians think there were more martyrs for the faith in the 20th century than there were in the previous 19 centuries combined. By some estimates, there may be a hundred thousand of our sisters and brothers killed for their faith each year. We follow and worship a slain lamb. If we are engaged in the fight, we can expect to face what he faced. We are his army following his lead, meant to look more and more like him, and to fight in the ways that he fought using his weapons, called to die to ourselves so we can become more like Christ. He won the great victory by his death. Our faithfulness in the face of opposition participates in his ongoing battles against evil and sin. Today, we are looking at the opening of the seals, Revelation 6, 7, and the very beginning of chapter 8. These seals close up the scroll that Doug introduced last week in chapter 5. The question last week was, who is worthy to open the scroll? John tells us the lamb who was slain is worthy. Today, we see the scroll opened, and the question becomes, who can stand on the day of the Lord's wrath? The answer this week, the Lamb's army, the people he has bought with his blood, and those whom he empowers to remain faithful to him in the face of suffering. Who can stand? Those who remain faithful to the Lamb all the way to death. Let's begin in prayer. Father, you have empowered us to follow Jesus because of his blood and because and through the Holy Spirit working in us. We pray this morning that your spirit would be on us, that it would uh, teach us by your word more of who we are and who you want us to be, how you want us to live in the face of evil and chaos. Father, we praise you as a giving, loving God. We praise you, Jesus, as the lamb who was slain. You are worthy to open the scroll because of your death on the cross for us. We praise you, Holy Spirit. Would you come and shape us to be more like Jesus today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last few weeks we've been going through Revelation. In Revelation 1 to 3, uh, which Anon took us through chapters 2 and 3, we saw that Jesus has showed up as commander of the Lord's armies, And he commands, he gives orders to his people and the messages to the churches. 
Last week, Doug took us into chapters four and five, where God invites John into the throne room of God, where Jesus is announced as Lion of Judah, Root of David. That is, he's Israel's Messiah, the leader of Israel's armies. But he's revealed, he's announced as the Lion of Judah, he's revealed as the Lamb who was slain. So Israel's Messiah, the leader of Israel's armies, wins victories by his death and leads an army from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The Lamb is worthy to open the scroll that contains God's plan for saving all creation. He's worthy because of his death. And this morning we're looking at the opening of the scroll itself, the breaking of the seven seals. I have a slide for you. This, the seven seals are the first of these four sevens, series of sevens, that structure the next several chapters of the book of Revelation. And we see, uh, I put the reference there for you, the role as they move through God's, uh, move through Revelation is the seals announce or open God's plan for redemption. The trumpets announce the invasion that's coming, which is God's plan for redemption. The thunders are the invasion beginning. And then the bowls are the judgment so that at the end of the bowls, we are ready for the new heavens and the new earth to come together. That's what God's intention is. That's his plan for salvation is that heaven and earth are united and we will get to spend eternity with our God. Uh, Just to look at that, each series has seven elements and we see increasing destruction as the series move along. So with the seals, we see a quarter of the earth is destroyed. With the trumpets, a third of the earth and its inhabitants are destroyed. The thunders, God tells John, don't write what you see. So we don't actually know, but it fits the pattern if it was half of the earth is destroyed. And then with the bowls, it's everything. The whole thing is wiped out. Again, each series has seven elements. What we see is a pattern of six elements. And then there's a break where it talks about what are the nations up to? How are the nations responding to God? And then it talks about what is the church up to? How is the church called to respond? So we also see uh, increasing rebellion against God as we go. So with the seals, the nations ask the question, who can stand on the day of the Lord's wrath? In other words, they recognize God. They're not ready to repent, but they recognize who he is. With the trumpets, specifically John tells us, They did not repent. They kept doing the evil that they were doing. With the thunders, we don't know, because again, we're not told. But with the bowls, after the sixth bowl, it says not only did they not repent, they blaspheme God and they gather for war against God, the war of Armageddon. In other words, we see increasing rebellion, don't we? Who can stand all the way to, I'm going to battle against God, even though they know, the nations know that God is more powerful and he's going to win the war. Again, after the sixth element in in each series, we also see a description of the church. Who is the church called to be? With the seals, we see that the church is called to be this 144,000, a worship army, an army of worshipers who's called to go to battle like the lamb goes to battle. With the trumpets, we see that the church is the two witnesses, whose faithfulness makes them look like Jesus. 
die, raised again, and the nations actually do repent at that moment, interestingly. The thunders, again, we don't know. And the bowls, the church is told, stay awake. They're just giving a blessing. Blessed are the ones who stay awake and uh, keep their clothes on, it says. So apparently we're supposed to keep our clothes on. The end of all of this, again, is that God's invasion of earth ends with the unity of heaven and earth and a new heavens and a new earth in the new Jerusalem when God will be united in intimacy with his people. Pretty cool. So let's look at the seals. And I want to start with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I should write that in blood and have like serious 70s guitar music in the back. And just to picture what I think is happening with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there's a lot of disagreement, by the way, about all of this that I'm about to tell you. Um, Faithful people, faithful commentators disagree on all this stuff. My picture of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is that God is giving evil an opportunity to reveal itself so that the nations can know, okay, if you choose evil, this is what you're choosing. This is what's going to happen. But God wants repentance from people. So let's read Revelation 6, verses 1 to 8. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice of, like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. But don't harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So four seals, four horsemen. The first seal is broken, and out comes a white horse, one who conquers by violence. The people that John is writing to would have seen this as the Caesar of Rome, Roman king, Caesar. He wants to be like Christ. Christ also rides a white horse and rule the nations, but he does so by violence. Christ does it by his own blood. This conqueror conqueror uses the weapons of the world. He conquers by violence. Again, he looks like Caesar. Second, the red horse, red for blood, uh, he takes peace from from the earth so that people slay one another and he's given a sword. Again, like the Roman Empire. Roman Empire is said to have created this lasting peace, the Pax Romana, if you've heard of this, Roman peace. What that means is they killed everyone who disagreed with them so that the only people left were peaceful because they didn't want to be killed. Red for the shedding of blood. The third horse is black. This is economic injustice is represented here. The Roman system, which privileged Rome and the wealthy and treated the poor with contempt. You see in the details here, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. The staples that the poor need to survive 
are too expensive for the poor to be able to afford. But oil and wine, that is the stuff that the wealthy want to use for themselves, that stuff is untouched. The poor can't get what they need. The wealthy can continue to get what they need. This is unjust. And fourth, the pale horse, death, followed by Hades. Again, like Rome, which kept people in submission by bringing death. All four of these horsemen would have reminded the churches reading this letter, oh, this is the Roman Empire. That's what John's talking about. He's talking about Rome. God is allowing evil to show itself through the Roman Empire, but also through the rest of history. We see all of these continue to happen, right? People conquer by the sword. People kill one another. They take peace. There's economic injustice and there's death. God is allowing evil to show itself, but he still constrains it on some level, right? Only a quarter of the earth is allowed to be destroyed. Not the whole thing yet. He's constraining it until he no longer will constrain it at the end of the book. Okay, those are the four horsemen. There's so many details here. I'd love to cover more, but that's all the time we have. Verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, the ones who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These are the saints who have died. They've experienced evil and they're just crying out, Lord, set things right. This is the cry of the Psalms. How long, O Lord? This is the cry of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom, be, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This by the way, is the right and faithful response of the people of God in the face of evil. How long, O Lord? God's answer is very dissatisfying. You've been faithful. You've done well. Here are some robes, but the time hasn't come yet. Not enough of you have died, he says. My grace continues... So that the, all the people who might still repent are given the opportunity to repent. I'm not going to set things right until they see evil fully for what it fully is and they know what they're choosing. My grace continues. God's answer in chaos and evil is often not to fix things. But he does empower and equip us for endurance and for ongoing faithfulness. Okay, the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, verse 12, I looked. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Verse 13. 
in the face of chaos and evil, the people of the nations here are choosing death rather than submission to God. Fall on me, mountains and rocks, so that I can die and not have to face God at the end of this. Do you know that feeling, by the way? I know I do. Fifteen years ago or so, when things would get crazier out of my control, my go-to was pornography. That's where I would go because I had some control there. And I'm still tempted to seek something else other than God when things get chaotic. This week, by the way, was one of those weeks. There's a little extra on my plate because I was preaching. I started the week with two wasp stings that made my legs swell up. It was Grace's birthday this week, and I wanted to honor her. On her birthday, her grandma died. We got that call while we were in the waiting room at a doctor's office, at which appointment we decided to have Lydia's tonsils taken out the next day. It was just one of those weeks. My temptation, by the way, this week was to check my phone. Why my phone? Well, because it was an escape and I could control what I experienced. Like the week was overwhelming. I was out of control. So I wanted to control the things that I experienced. I could handle a news story or sports scores or woodblock puzzle. I do want to make a special mention here of Grace's grandma, Pat, who died this week. She was 95. She loved her family. She loved her son, Mark, and uh, his two brothers. She loved Twin Falls, Kimberly area. She believed, I, I think she firmly believed this, uh, that everything that was great in the world came out of Twin Falls and Kimberly. She loved kids. Grace uh, was looking through pictures this week, and almost every picture, she's in the picture with kids, and her, she's just, her devoted attention is on the kid. Like, she's not one of those who was winking at the camera while she's playing with the kids. She was devoted to the children who were in front of her. I appreciate that about her. I also loved her pies. So it's a sad week, though we are excited for her to be in the presence of her Lord this week. But please pray for the Fisher family when you think of of the Fishers this week. But in chaos, my response was to seek control. Typically, this is one of the ways that we respond We try to take back control by doing things that we know we can do, even when those things make no difference to our circumstances. It's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. When the chaos inside and outside us tells us we can't handle life or can't fix fix the world, we respond by seeking control over things that are useless. Or often we continue living as though nothing has happened. So we respond in anxiety and control. I need to fix it and make it right. Or by denial, this isn't a real issue. I'm not going to change anything. Or like the people do here, in despair. This is so terrible, I want to die. That's kind of how Lydia has been with the pain from having her tonsils removed. Like, I, this is terrible, I want to die. And so we go, okay, take your medicine. No, I can't do the medicine. Medicine's going to make you feel better. No, I don't want the med. The worst part of this has been waking up in the middle of the night to give her medicine and she just fights it. It's too bad. Pray for Lydia this week. We've already seen what a faithful response looked like with the fifth seal, right? How long, O oh Lord? When are you going to do something? We go to the Lord and seek Him. 
he does not always fix it. Too often we think he should fix it. He doesn't do that. In fact, I don't think we should expect God to fix our circumstances, though sometimes he does. Much more commonly, what he does is give us himself so that we continue to be faithful. By the way, this week when I turned to the Lord, uh, my reading, my Bible reading was Matthew 24, which is not a peaceful or comforting passage. The disciples are asking Jesus, how do we know when you're going to come back? He says, well, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and persecution and death. So God did not fix (laughs) my circumstances, but he gave me what I needed to continue faithfully. Okay. The end of chapter six is who can stand? The beginning of chapter seven answers that question. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 Reuben, 12,000 Gad, 12,000 Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So that's the number of the sealed. So who can stand? The people who receive the mark of the lamb. We're going to talk about the mark of the beast. You've heard of the mark of the beast, the 666. But the people of God receive the mark of the lamb. The lamb's mark should remind us of the blood that was put on the doorposts at Passover that allowed the angel of death to pass by the houses of the faithful in in uh, the faithful Israelites and move on to the people of Egypt. The angel of death who went and took the firstborn. Whenever the angel of death came to a house, he would pass over those houses where blood covered the doorframe. In the same way, the Lord's wrath will pass by those marked with the blood of our lamb, Jesus. We are freed from the judgment of sin because he has already paid it for us. Amen. The Messiah's army. By the way, that's what a census is in the Old Testament and throughout the scriptures. So 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes is a census. You do a census when you're ready to go to war. This army, the 144,000, is the army of Israel ready for war. That's what this is. All of Israel is represented here. All of God's people are represented in this 144,000 ready for war. That's what John hears. 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. What does John see when he turns to look at the 144,000? Chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen! All nations, peoples, tribes, languages, everyone participates. There is no exclusion in the kingdom of God. All are welcome in the kingdom. So our racism, our fear of foreigners, our rejection of outsiders, these aren't marks of the kingdom of God, are they? Those foreigners that we're afraid of and those outsiders that we're rejecting are potential foot soldiers in the battle against evil. They could be our sisters and brothers in the fight. Our rejection of others, our desire to huddle with people like us, shows our devotion to the kingdoms of this world instead of to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is made up of people from all tribes and peoples and nations and languages. I have another slide for you here just to picture what's happening. Do you remember chapter 5? Doug taught us last week. It begins with a question, who's worthy to open the scroll? John hears the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. These are images from Israel's history, from the Old Testament. This is the leader of the armies of God. The leader of the armies of God is, he turns to look, a slain lamb. The leader of the armies of God fights by his death. And then the response is, worthy are you because you, worthy are you to open the scroll because you have died for all people, tribes, tongues, nations, etc. The same pattern shows up here in Revelation 7. The question is, who can stand? John hears something from Israel's history. The army of Israel can stand, 144,000 from Israel. When he turns to look at who that army of Israel is, it's a uncountable multitude from all nations. In other words, the uncountable multitude from all nations is the army of Israel. Israel has become all the nations worshiping the Lord. We fight Israel's battles by our connection with one another and by worship of God. And then... They continue, the response is to continue the worship. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Does that make sense? So the 144,000 is an uncountable multitude. The army of Israel is people from all nations worshiping the Lord. We fight by our worship. The army of Israel is an army of white-robed worshipers from all nations. They're worshiping Jesus, telling the truth about him with the worship of our lives. That's the way we go to battle. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages in the scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 7, where the Philistines have taken the ark. Now they've returned the ark to, to Israel and Samuel gathers the nation together and says, hey, the, the ark has come back. Let's worship God. In repentance, because they took the ark because we were sinners. So he gathers the whole nation and the Philistines here that the nations gather. So they start going, hey, we can take them all out at once. They're gathering to worship. They're not ready for war. Let's go. So the Philistines start coming. The nation gets scared. And what does Samuel do? He doesn't arm the people. 
He doesn't uh, put them in battle lines. He says, let's worship. So 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 10 says, Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. Old Testament 2. When we go to battle, we go to battle by worship. Worship is the way we do battle against evil. The Lord thundered a great thunder to win a great victory before their enemies. In the end, it's not us who wins battles, is it? It's the Lord. So just a quick note on worship here. The worshipers in Revelation 7 are participating in the worship that's ongoing around the throne. They're crying out, salvation belongs to our God. Their worship points to the worship of chapters 4 and 5, adding that God saves. And then the elders and the creatures continue worshiping. Christian worship unites us with the ongoing worship in heaven. And it wins battles, I want to suggest, by three things. There are certainly more. First, by giving God the glory that he deserves. That's one way we go to battle. Two, by drawing our allegiances away from the nations and putting them where they belong, toward the Lamb. And three, uh, shaping us to be more like Christ. So first, worship gives God the glory that he deserves. Worship speaks the truth about who God is and about what creation is. In our worship, we participate in the ongoing work that's going on in heaven right now, bringing it onto earth, making it present on the earth. This is a weighty, mighty task, especially in a world that's constantly speaking lies to us. Second, worship draws allegiances from the nations and uh, turns it where it belongs, to the Lamb. The nations, including this one in which we live, are regularly seeking to attract us to themselves and distract us from God. The church is often tempted to just submit to the nation. For instance, the German church submitted to Hitler's Germany in the 30s and 40s. The Chilean Catholic church tended to submit to the dictator Pinochet until they learned to stand against him. And American Christians are tempted to submit to Americanism in just the same way. Our nation is demanding our allegiance, but true worship of the Lamb draws our attention back to Jesus. It redirects our hearts to their true love. This also is an important and difficult task in our ongoing battle against evil. And third, worship shapes us to be like Christ. Musical worship is great for both lament and celebration. It tunes our hearts, and musical worship tunes our hearts to the ways of God. Worship by the creeds, reciting the creeds, helps us to attach our allegiance and our citizenship to Jesus as King, to pledge our allegiance to His kingdom. Worship by prayer invites us to be priests as Jesus is our high priest, offering the nations before God and receiving from God so that we have something to offer to the nations. Worship by giving and offering forms us to become generous, to identify with the poor and oppressed like our Lord, who gave up his place at God's side to become human, a servant, one who went all the way to death like a criminal for us. Worship by teaching the word forms us to see Christ as the Word, 
the one in whom the whole creation hangs together and the order for everything that exists. And worship by communion shapes us to see Jesus as the lamb, the one who gave up his life and his blood for us. We become lamb-like as we eat his body in the bread and drink his blood in the wine of communion. So worship, these are central acts to our formation as the army of the lamb. Another note here, the worshipers have washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb. This means they've been faithful all the way to the point of suffering and death. When we suffer like Jesus, we wash our garments in his blood. It's not our blood that makes us clean, but we are called to participate in his blood by staying faithful in suffering and death. These worshipers are washing their robes white in the blood of the lamb, which is an interesting image, right? You don't wash your robes white in blood. That stains them red. But the blood of the lamb is a cleansing blood. This is an intentional, active process. They are washing. They're going down to the river that flows from the cross, the blood of Jesus flowing from the cross, taking their dirty garments and washing them clean. They're working hard to love their enemies. They're rejecting compromise with the systems of the world. They're working hard to be like Christ. They actively stand against the world in ways that might invite persecution and even death, like Christ's death. I think of Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where Dylan Roof, a historical, historic black church, where Dylan Roof went in and killed nine Bible study people just because he wanted to start a race war. Mother Emmanuel Church loved him while he was there. He sat with them for an hour and did a Bible study with them. And then, after the fact, the people have forgiven him. These are people who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. I know I, and I think we, have a lot to learn from our sisters and brothers who face persecution and violence. Like the black church in this country, and the Coptic church in Egypt, and refugees in our community. Those who have learned to be faithful in the face of suffering are fighting on the front lines of the battle against evil. They are winning battles for the kingdom of God. And as followers of the Lamb, he calls us to identify with those who suffer, not with the wealthy and powerful. So, we fight by remaining faithful to the Lamb, by our faithfulness and persecution and suffering, by our worship, and by refusing to compromise with the ways of the world. And in response, the lamb cares for his people. Starting in verse uh, 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What an image. He spreads his tent over us. We will no longer experience hunger or thirst or the sun or heat. The lamb shepherds us. It's a great image, right? The lamb shepherding his people. He is wiping away every tear. The lamb here is acting as the shepherd, the good shepherd from Psalm 23. We know that Jesus is the good shepherd, but I still think it's a really clever image to paint the lamb who was slain as the shepherd. 
And then really quickly, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, the seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Seventh seal opens, and what is always happening in heaven? Worship. It's ongoing in heaven. It never stops in heaven. When the seventh seal is open, even the worship stops. There is silence in heaven. Because the seal has been opened. The scroll is now able to be opened. The, the, the God's salvation and redemption plan, the thing that he's been pointing toward since creation began, is now open. Heaven is waiting in anticipation. They're holding their breath. What's this going to be? They're so excited for what God's about to do. Even worship stops. All of God's plans for creation are now coming true. And what we see happen, the next step, is that the seven trumpets are given to seven angels. God will now announce the invasion that's coming. He is now going to come and set everything right. Okay. I want to close this morning by looking at the lamb and how he shows up in these uh, chapters. In the face of chaos and evil, it's important that we look to the lamb. He is sovereign. He is judge. He is leading his army and he is protecting and shepherding his people. So first, first he is sovereign. He is in control of all of the events that happen in chapters six and seven and really for the rest of the book, right? He is the one who is opening the seals. When the seals are open, then chaos happens. Evil shows up, but he is in control of it. When life is chaotic and evil seems to be winning, Jesus is the one opening the scroll. He is setting all of this in motion. There is nothing that is happening to you or to me or all of the earth that is beyond or outside of his power to redeem. So he is sovereign. Second, he is judge. He is judging the nations. The day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. Who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb, his judgment is coming on those who rebel against him. They are all measured, every nation is measured by its submission to the Lamb. By that measure, all the nations fall short, and so all nations will be judged. At the same time, people from all the nations are a part of his kingdom so that all nations have something valuable to offer. But he rules over and will judge all of them. Third, he leads his army. Remember, the 144,000 is the army of Israel, the army of the Messiah. The Lamb is the Messiah, the one who leads his army into battle. And it's his blood that makes us clean. It's his faithfulness by which we are empowered to be faithful. He is leading us. He's not standing far off barking orders. He's here with us. He went first, in fact. So he's sovereign, he's judge, he's leading us, and he's protecting and shepherding us. The lamb is our shepherd. He has sealed us for the battle to protect us from evil. He has sealed us by his blood, by his death on the cross, which bought us out of the nations and bought us into his kingdom. We no longer need to face the wrath that we deserve, but we instead stand and get to fight 
with our shepherd. And he shepherds us to quiet waters and green pastures. In the end, though we will probably face chaos and evil and death, he will ultimately give us eternal life with him, where there will no longer be hunger or thirst, no pain or tears, and no more separation from him. So praise the Lamb. He has bought us for himself with his blood. He is our commander and our shepherd. He is worthy to open the scroll. He will judge the nations with justice and truth. He will make all things right so that justice will flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. To Him be all blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we praise you. Jesus, we praise you as the Lamb. You are worthy to open the scroll because you were slain. And we give you thanks that you are with us. You haven't abandoned us to evil. And in the middle of chaos, you're still in control. We give you thanks and praise. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to make us that army that can go and fight battles against evil for the kingdom of God by your weapons and by your purposes. Continue to lead us and shape us. Make us new so that we're prepared for the new heavens and the new earth. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.